Hi, I'm Julia Clare, current editor of the What A Day newsletter. And I'm Priyanka Arabindi, former editor of the What A Day newsletter and current co-host of the What A Day podcast. Staying up to date with the constant flow of news each day, especially with updates on anti-trans legislation, upcoming primaries, and questionable court decisions is certainly a challenge. However, if you only have a few minutes to spare or are looking for a quick read, subscribe to Crooked Media's daily newsletter, What A Day. This newsletter covers everything from the most significant news stories of the week to ones that may have slipped under your radar. Stay up to date on the latest news without sacrificing your precious binge watching time. Subscribe to the What A Day newsletter at crooked.com slash daily. Throughout the pandemic, communications from our national and local leaders have often been confusing, contradictory, and uncoordinated. The DeBoma Foundation has published a book with practical tools to improve health communications through framing, messaging, and storytelling. The first book on this topic in the COVID-19 era. It's called Talking Health, a new way to communicate about public health. Learn more about it and get your copy at TalkingHealthBook.org. Smoke from a Canadian wildfire plunges the Northeast and Midwest into darkness, devastating air quality for days. FDA advisors recommend a new monoclonal antibody against RSV for infants. Pharmaceutical corporation Merck sues the federal government over Medicare drug price negotiations. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Let me put my cards on the table. I am an AI skeptic. I'm old enough to remember the unbridled optimism over the internet. It was going to connect us all, and that was going to bring us together in ways that would end war, famine, destruction of all sorts. Yeah, that's not how it worked out. Don't get me wrong. The internet is an incredible tool. The ability to have any information at my fingertips with a couple of thumbtaps, that's truly incredible. I love that I can reach out to long-lost friends and that so many of them were never lost in the first place. And I get to share my perspectives with you through this podcast. That'd be impossible without the internet. But to say that unlimited connections have made us better as a society, (laughs) absolutely not. There's, of course, the rising threat to democracy, driven by the spread of myths and disinformation and the greed of major tech companies who decided to feed us the worst of one another to turn unprecedented profits. There's the way that the internet has destroyed social cohesion by forcing every major interaction we share into an online simulacrum of itself. There's the way that it's led to skyrocketing rates of loneliness, depression, anxiety, and even suicidality, as we talked about last week. All that, it just so happened to take off in the early 2010s right around the time broadband became fast enough for convenient use and smartphones made the internet portable. That put social media on steroids. So when folks tell us that AI is going to, quote, change everything, it's not that I don't believe them. It's that I'm not so sure that's a good thing. But look, I'm just as enamored by the possibilities of AI as everyone else. I mean, I asked ChatGPT to do the following. Write me an introduction to an episode of America Dissected, a podcast about health and society, about the risks and benefits of AI for healthcare and public health in the voice of Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. And here's what it had to say. Welcome back, my friends, to another riveting episode of America Dissected, the podcast where we dig deep into the complex tapestry of health and society. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, physician, public health expert, and your guide on this journey. Today, we embark on a topic that both fascinates and unsettles us, the rapidly evolving realm of artificial intelligence in healthcare and public health. AI, with its promise of precision and efficiency, has the potential to revolutionize the way we diagnose, treat, and prevent disease. But as we navigate these uncharted waters, we must also confront the ethical, societal, and privacy implications that come hand-in-hand with this transformative technology. It went for another seven paragraphs. And look, that was fine, but I don't think ChatGBT is going to replace me as this podcast host anytime soon. But AI is only going to get better. 
And that's why it's so frightening. Look, I don't really care that much about what AI means for podcast hosts. I'm a lot more worried about what it means for healthcare. Here's how I think about it. AI is basically going to accelerate all the things we love and hate about the internet, especially when it comes to large language models or LLMs. Just like broadband put social media on steroids, I think LLMs are going to put the internet on steroids. They amplify the promise and the peril. And when it comes to healthcare, those perils can have disastrous consequences. With the advent of the internet, more people have more medical information at their fingertips. And that's generally a good thing. But then there's the problem that people Google their symptoms and they could either have a cold or cancer. And then they conclude the wrong way. Now apply that to the problem of, quote, hallucination. The fact that these models just make things up. Sure, I'm told that this will happen less and less over time as the models get better, which makes it feel like we'll be that much worse at catching it when it happens. And when people take what AI says as gospel truth, these are as good as lies, and they can hurt people. Now you might push back and say, but Abdul, that's not the same thing as a highly specialized LLM designed for medical applications. Sure, but that creates a whole other issue. The creators of those specialized medical applications will be the companies with the resources and power to build them. And those are either going to be healthcare companies or tech companies. And they'll use their tools just as they have in their respective industries to corner more and more of the market. That means more consolidation in an already consolidated healthcare market, squeezing out profits from workers and squeezing out patients entirely. But then for as many great medical applications as there might be that ostensibly make things better, think about how many bad actors will use AI to make things worse. Think about how much more misinformation can be manufactured by an LLM created specifically for this purpose. Think about all the deepfakes created to push conspiracy theories that can be littered all over the internet. Now look, I know I have a really skeptical view on things, so I wanted to make sure you heard an optimistic take too. And I could think of no one better than Dr. Eric Topol, truly one of the most impactful thinkers in healthcare and author of the 2019 book, Deep Medicine, How AI Can Make Healthcare Human Again. In his Substack Ground Truths, he's been writing a lot more about AI and healthcare recently. My conversation with Dr. Eric Topol after this break. America Dissected is brought to you by Outer Known. Look, do you have a favorite outfit when it's hotter than 90 degrees? I do. And it involves a whole lot of Outer Known because Outer Known clothing is comfortable, looks great, and I know it's good for the planet. Outer Known is the first brand founded on a total commitment to sustainability. Outer Known offers extremely comfortable and stylish men's and women's clothing. Every product they make has a planet-first mentality, meaning materials are environmentally friendly and the factories they work with provide safe working conditions and fair living wages for all workers. Every Outer Known product is comfortable, breathable, fits great, designed to make you look and feel great, and sustainably made from high-quality organic and recycled materials. Some of their best-selling items include the Apex Trunks by 11-time world surfing champion slash founder Kelly Slater, the most high-performance trunk out there. It's lightweight, durable, and perfect for adventure. Their jumpsuits are especially popular, easy to get dressed in, flattering, fit perfectly, stylish for everyone. And they've got an incredibly high-quality tee for every occasion. Go to OuterKnown.com slash America today, and you'll get 25% off your first order. That's OuterKnown.com slash America. Spelled O-U-T-E-R-K-N-O-W-N dot com slash America to receive the 25% off discount code. Check them out today, outerknown.com slash America, and don't forget to use the promo code on the page for 25% off. America Dissected is brought to you by Article. Look, one of the best things about summer is doing all your favorite indoor things outside. Sharing meals, watching movies, falling asleep on the sofa accidentally. Everything's better al fresco. Article's curated catalog of outdoor furniture is here to help you do all your favorite things this summer. They've got everything you need to really make things your own, from outdoor sofas to dining sets to decor. Article believes in delightful design for every home, and thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices too. 
Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, and, well, Scandian boho designs to make furniture shopping simple. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. Plus, they won't leave you waiting around. You pick the delivery time, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Article's knowledgeable customer care team is there when you need them to make sure that your experience is smooth and stress-free. Look, beyond Scandian boho, which I truly, deeply love, I also love the fact that this furniture, well, doesn't break the bank. It comes thoughtfully packaged in two weeks or less, and it lasts. I got two kids at home, and our article furniture looks as good as the day we bought it. Article is offering America Dissected listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash AD, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash AD for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Here's my conversation with Dr. Eric Topol. Let's, uh, let's jump right in. Can you introduce yourself for the tape? I'm uh, Eric Topol, and I'm really glad to join you, Abdul. I am... Um... Uh, at Scripps Research as a professor and the uh, founder and director of our Translational Institute. For folks who don't understand, what is translational medicine? How do we think about that? Yeah, what that really means is that you're trying to take discoveries and advances that are just sitting in the idea and research space, publications, but you're trying to actually use them to improve medicine. To, to improve patients and, and promote human health. And I think the reason why that's important is because I think people assume that you got a bunch of scientists and they're like hanging out with the doctors. And in the cafeteria, the scientists talk to the doctors and like, hey, this could be really helpful for this patient because at least that's how they do it in-house. But the truth of the matter is, is that medicine and science, though very connected in the grand schema of all of the, um, all of the different industries that exist out there, there really is a challenge between getting breakthroughs at the bench into the bedside. And we require people like you who are thinking about both what is new and hot in science and what are the problems at, uh, that we're encountering at scale at the bedside and asking which of these can we use today. And that that is not an altogether um, obvious thing to do. And that also puts you in a unique position because your career has been built around asking these kinds of questions around the opportunity and also the very clear risks that are posed by AI. I, I would say that you're also in that role, one of medicine's foremost futurists. You know, if you think about it, the ability to say, here's what's cutting edge and interesting in science, and here's the problems it maps to in medicine, helps you to sort of be thinking about what the future of medicine looks like. What is a medicine unburdened by some of the challenges that we've often had, but then also uniquely burdened by some of the new things that technology might impose. And it also strikes me that you're somebody who's really optimistic about AI. And I have to tell you, like, I'm not. Like, I actually, I, I think my existential dread, you know, I, uh, we were talking beforehand and I kind of compared um, AI to meeting a new very large dog when you're a child. It's like this thing could maul my face off and I could die, but it also could uh, be really fun uh, to play with. And I don't really know which one to expect. And, and maybe... Uh, maybe it helps to say that I'm someone who, you know, having been bit by a dog when I was a kid, I'm afraid of dogs. So um, you're you're a you're a a a, um, a an optimist about our AI future. Walk us through why, and, and if I'm wrong about my assessment based on reading you, um, tell me why 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 maybe my assessment's off. Right. Well, I'm fully cognizant of the the reliability, so I don't want to be considered as a pure optimist, but. Uh, Back four years ago, I 
published a book called Deep Medicine. And in that book, I outlined where AI could take us. And as you know, there's considerable disenchantment in the medical profession among doctors and nurses. And the, the whole issue there is the inability to actually care for patients because there's not enough time, because there's all this data clerk function. And uh, it's not a good situation at all. And the whole idea in, of deep medicine was there's potential for AI to get us to a level where our patient-doctor relationship was restored to where it was many decades mm. ago and that we would have the gift of time. Now, recently, of course, in, in November when ChatGPT was released and the next three months, 100 billion unique users were onto it. And then now GPT-4 in March, we're into this kind of hyper-accelerated new form of AI, the large language models. And that power, the pluripotent aspect of this form of AI brings to mind the ability to actualize that vision I laid out four years ago, but it also brings the concerns about these hallucinations, misinformation. It brings out the doomsayers with the existential threat of AI and all the concerns that are on both sides because it's something that's so powerful and not poorly understood. And we've already seen the guardrails can come off and you sure don't want that going on in the healthcare setting. So what we're seeing is a revolution, something we've never seen in the history of medicine. And it's still in the earliest stages. And that's what I think we have to consider is whatever good and bad that could come out of this we're in, you know, we haven't gotten to the first inning yet. I had read Deep Medicine as a big fan of your work. I mean, I, I want listeners to understand, I don't, I don't nerd out or uh, fanboy over very many people. Uh, our guest today is somebody I, I, I am fanboying about, about getting. And like this, this is, if, if we get too nerdy, I'm going to make sure to pull myself back and, and our producers can remind me in my ear that I'm, I'm, I'm nerding out too much. But I remember reading Deep Medicine back in 2020, before the advent of ChatGPT. That was also before the advent of a certain um, pandemic. And I remember sort of being like, oh man, this is going to be amazing. It's going to change everything. I really want to be a practicing doctor in, in the world that AI is going to unlock. And you know, for, for, for listeners, they know this. I, I don't practice medicine because of a lot of the moral drag that I think you identified um, early on in the conversation. I, I don't believe we um, have girded what we do for the right people because of the preoccupation with making money. And because of the preoccupation with making money, there has become this immense drag on the practice of medicine. And I don't think those two things are related. Um, and and I, I thought myself, like after I read in the book, I was like, this really could usher in the kind of world where, uh, where we really could practice medicine at scale in a way that addresses both the moral and the bureaucratic failures of the practice. And then, and then I um, was brushing up on the book post ChatGPT, and I have to say, my experience of it was just—I kept going back to the issues and the 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 the, the real, you know, the, what I think um, folks have, have taken a calling P doom, right? The the probability that that we all just uh, all of society gets gets enveloped by this thing, and those kept coming to coming to mind, and the feeling that I had kind of was like, oh, I've been here before. And it was at the advent of the internet. I remember sitting in my seventh grade classroom and we, um, we had, we had 
used this thing called a webcam uh, to um, look into the explorations of a, a group of explorers who were exploring never before uh, seen Mayan ruins. And I was like, this is so cool. The internet's going to be amazing and it's going to make everything better. And look, like you and I are having a real-time conversation on this thing called a webcam. Uh, and this podcast exists because of the internet. And I have to say, I, I appreciate that very much. And also Donald Trump became president because of the internet. And I don't know which, which, which version of, of I, I which version of the earth I would have liked better. Um, so all of that is to say that I, you know, it almost feels like we're in that moment again, where you're like, this sounds like a really great idea, except for maybe we're just optimistic as a species and we did this already and it just didn't work out so great. How do you, you know, when you reflect on on your thinking um, before the advent of ChatGPT and LLMs, how has your, I don't know, I don't, I don't mean to say it this way, speaking to a preeminent uh, a physician scientist, but what are the vibes? Like, how have the vibes changed for you now that you've sort of seen how fast uh, AI can come? Has it changed the way, or at least the tone you would have written the book in? Um, versus the way that I read it uh, before and after ChatGPT? Yeah, that's a great question that you're asking. Uh, because back in 2019, the issue there was we had these deep neural networks that could take scans, medical images, and do a great job in helping their interpretation and promote accuracy. And that, that was great. And we've seen that across every type of scan of medical image and cardiograms and retina photos and you name it, skin lesions. I mean, so that, of course, improving accuracy in medicine is really important. And there's not much can go wrong there because you have the human in the loop. And uh, I think that's a contribution that is going to be considered a, a really important one, even a momentous one. Now, what was not ready back then, I mean, a few years ago, was how do we take what's so-called multimodal data when we take your all your medical records, your images, your labs, your sensor data, your genome, your gut microbiome, your environment, and all your everything about you, and say, we're going to be your virtual health assistant, or we're going to keep you out of the hospital because we can do remote monitoring. That is, there was no ability, multimodal data, to integrate all that and um, give it as a uh, package to a clinician, doctor, or for the patient. Now there is. And now it becomes where you have to regulate it. You have to be very, very careful of the harm it could induce um, because it's a whole different capacity. It's taken whatever we had three years ago and a multiplier that was unforeseen at this early point in time. You know, interestingly, I spoke to all the leading AI gurus back then, and they said, well, yeah, we just don't have the models to do this. <laughs> someday, someday we will. And you say, well, maybe that'll be eight or 10 years. It turned out it was just a few years. It turned out that the actual model to do it, so-called transformer model, had already been invented by discovered by Google, but they sat on it because they didn't want to challenge their search uh, uh, monopoly, if you will. And then meanwhile, you know, OpenAI just ran with it. 
Um, and basically, at least uh, in the, at the moment, they're in a kind of lead situation. So I think the key here was we got to another state of machines being more advanced with their apparent intelligence than we had foreseen. And we're in an accelerated phase of that. And we have to be very careful. But the net potential here is for good things is really quite considerable. So walk me through some of the things that AI has already changed in medicine. I think you walked through a couple of them. You know, one that comes to mind is AlphaFold. Walk us through what's already, it's already delivered and how that tangibly changes the scope and in, in, in practice of, of medicine. Yeah, well, AlphaFold, I'm glad you mentioned it. That is the biggest life science uh, contribution of AI because the fact that you could uh, take the Uh, amino acid sequence and generate the accurate 3D uh, crystal structure of a protein, any protein in the universe. I mean, we're talking about a couple hundred million proteins. Uh, The fact that you can do that uh, is extraordinary, and that happened quickly. uh, And that will facilitate not only our understanding of biology, but drug discovery. Uh, and already has. And it's already unlocked secrets that we've never known the structure, such as the nuclear uh, pore complex, uh, the way things get into the nucleus of all of our cells. So that's exciting. Uh, It's made a big contribution, obviously, in medical image interpretation. The next thing it's going to do is change how TAS, the data clerk, functions. Because the natural language processing and all of its downstream impact is ready to go in terms of, instead of having to sit at a keyboard, the ability to take a note synthetic, make a note synthetically from a conversation to extract all the important stuff from that and a better note than we write as physicians. Uh, But not just that, but from that note set up any lab tests and procedures that are needed, follow-up appointments, do the pre-authorizations, do the the codes for billing, uh, make future contacts with the patients to nudge them about things that were discussed during the conversation, and uh, follow-up appointments, and on and on. So the point being is that this is a fundamental change the way medicine is practiced. And we're going to see this change over the next you know, a couple of years. And this is one that will hopefully be one of the most welcome, embraced changes in medicine because it really gets rid of a lot of the work that nurses and doctors and, you know, all clinicians really don't want to do. They've been saddled with this data clerk function. So what we're talking about, these things, the, the, the life science contribution, the image interpretation, and now this third chapter, which is the administrative, operational uh, healthcare aspects. These are going to be seen, I think, as very uh, important contributions that are not really with significant risk because they all have human oversight. Each one of them, I mean, you, don't, you don't pick a 3D structure of a protein and then just accept it. You, know, you, 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 you do a lot of checkpoints to make sure that, that, it, that it is that model that has been created from the, um, the deep neural network is indeed accurate. Yeah. Any one of these things are pretty much the guardrails really can't come off. As long as 
the doctor checks the note, you know, and as long as the image is not just only interpreted by an algorithm. When you start getting out of the humans out of the loop potential, or you basically are uh, doing things that are clinically um, diagnosing treatment, that's when you start to get potentially into trouble. So I, I want to um, just explain a couple of pieces there uh, for our listeners who might not have a background just in, in basic science. But what AlphaFold does is it uh, takes an extremely complex uh, set of equations that tell you about how the functional pieces of different amino acids, so a protein is just a chain of different amino acids, each of which have this thing called a side chain, and that side chain interacts differently with different side chains. And it's those side chain interactions, both directly but then indirectly, that, that predict how a protein is going to go from a chain of amino acids into a folded three-dimensional whole. And what AlphaFold did, it, it basically, before we, we had done this, we basically just did a guess and check format, you know, at scale. I think what, what computer scientists would call like brute force analysis, which of these does the thing that we think it should do versus now it, it can operate at a level of complexity that breaks, you know, our ability, um, as, uh, as theorists or scientists to predict. And it's, it's extremely accurate. And at that point, once you can do that, right, once you know, you can map from DNA to an amino acid sequence to a three-dimensional protein, that gives you a whole lot of power around being able to um, manipulate biology. The other point that, that you were making was about images. And I think a lot of folks don't really appreciate this, but there are whole branches of medicine that are basically built around reading images. Whether you are a pathologist who's, uh, unless you're a forensic pathologist and, and you're doing autopsies, your job is basically to look at very, 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 very thin slices of human tissue and identify what's wrong with them based on the ways that cells look. And if you're a radiologist, right, your job is to look at different kinds of scans and identify what's wrong. And, you know, it's interesting, anybody who's ever gone to medical school or trained in, in, in clinical medicine at all, the, the, the ability for the human brain to identify patterns is on full display when you watch a very, very capable radiologist read a scan, right? I mean, I remember reading my first ex chest x-ray and you read it and then, you know, the senior medical school student reads it, picks up some more things, and then a resident, early resident reads it, and then the late resident reads it, and then you have a fellow who reads it and all of them are picking up new stuff. And then you have this like, you know, attending with 25, 30 years of experience and they're like, you know, in five seconds, you're like, you missed this, you missed that, you missed this other. And you're like, is it really there? And they just see it because, because they've been looking at these their whole lives. Now we have machines that can train on literally every single chest x-ray that's ever been done to identify patterns that, that the human brain simply can't see because you've only seen the ones that you've seen, right? And, um, and so there's just something really unique about this uh, in terms of the ability to like fundamentally change things. What's also interesting uh, to, to your point, you know, I sort of think about, I went to medical school and decided not to do a residency. And somebody asked me, what did you learn in medical school? And I was like, well, the soft skill was to listen to and speak to people in pain. And that's a really, really important skill. And I'm really grateful that I have that skill in the work that I do every day. The other skill though, was the ability to generate a differential diagnosis. Like of all of the things that you have to sort of be able to do at the end of medical school, the ability to generate co a coherent differential diagnosis is basically what you learn in medical school. Like that's basically it. Now, ideally you from a differential can identify what the next step is in terms of diagnostic text testing uh, and what treatments would look like. But really that ability, like the, the, the sort of intellectual firepower to generate a differential, that's where the, 
the the ability to both use inductive and deductive reasoning collectively comes in. And that takes a lot of training, four years of training. And we've got machines now that based on what you're sharing is they can just sort of observe a set of conversations and can do it for us. And so I want to get to the question you asked about the more disruptive, potentially dangerous parts. But one of the disruptions that I see is just that I don't know that medicine as we know it will continue to exist for very long, right? I, I don't see why, aside from a sort of a check function, you have the same level of uh, radiology or the same level of pathology as you do in the pre-AI world. Where am I wrong on that? Well, I think one of the things you have to uh, bear in mind is machine eyes see things that humans can't. Yeah. Okay. So if I show a retinal photo of you to, to a trained uh, neural network, it will not just tell me about the status of your retina and your eye, but it will tell me about things like kidney disease, mm-hmm. hepatobiliary disease, your um, risk of heart disease. It will tell me about your control of your diabetes, if you had that, your blood pressure. And so any medical image that's been trained properly, there's things that are rich that you will will never be able to see because these are trained by, as you were alluding to, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of images. So we see that, I mean, a a cardiogram that can tell your, your hemoglobin level if you're anemic and also your ejection fraction, even your age and your sex from your cardiogram. And I read cardiograms uh, for the last 30-some years, and I would never be able to do any of those things, really. And so each image, you, you touched on the pathologist. Well, when the pathologist is looking at a slide, it wouldn't be able to say, well, this is from a cancer where the prognosis is such and such, the, the driver mutation is such and such. It has these many structural vi- variations. And by the way, the tumor is coming from this, not that, all from the slide. The pathologist could never see that. So if you want to understand the power of AI, when you talk about supervised learning, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And so just because we've gotten into this new phase where it's kind of gotten into, you know, supercharged, Let's not forget some of the things it's recently been able to, mm-hmm. to accomplish, which are great contributions to not just accuracy in medicine, but, you know, someday, I, I don't think medicine is going to change as much as you're, I think, suggesting. But someday you'll take a picture of your smartphone of your retina and you'll get uh, a checkup medically of every, every organ system, essentially whether you know you have any signs of neurodegenerative disease in the earliest possible um, time frame and, and on and on. So uh, that's how th- I think medicine can change in a very positive way because of leaning on machines. So when you say I'm an optimist, I do see some of those very positive things. And I, I, I fully and 100% appreciate that. I guess I, so thinking through that, it strikes me that there are a couple of issues. The first you were going to get to um, was about when when a AI operates at the continuum between diagnosis and treatment without a human on the loop. Walk us through what that would look like, and of course, some of the risks that come out of that. Well, now we get to the 
a really frontier of patients because most of the time when people talk about AI and healthcare, they're just thinking about doctors and nurses, clinicians. But actually, the patients, if you look at that 1 billion unique users of ChatGPT in the first three months, they're all patients, right? I mean, the, the, the mass use of these large language models will be patients. And now with GPT-4, it's multimodal. That is, you can use images, uh, videos as inputs with prompts, not just text and, Mm -hmm. and speech or voice. So what happens when you, let's say you have a skin lesion and you put it into the large language model as a patient because you want to know, should you go to a dermatologist? And what happens to the large language model interpretation says, oh, nothing to worry about, you know. And it turns out you actually have a very serious skin cancer that needed attention. That's just an example of how things could go wrong, is getting bad screening, mm-hmm. a diagnosis. And, you know, we, we already have AI. You know, we have like a smart watch, which would tell you if you likely had atrial fibrillation, an important rhythm problem or you know, the idea that you could diagnose a urinary tract infection from an AI kit you could get from the drugstore, which already exists in many countries outside the U.S., probably will be here imminently. So doctorless screening through AI is going to become an issue Hmm. because if it gives people the wrong answer, uh, particularly if it's a potentially serious mistake, that's not going to go over well. So these, these systems for doing doctorless screening have to be really uh, proven to be a benefit and not harm. It's not just Florida. 44 states have introduced bills or taken steps to limit how teachers can discuss racism and sexism. But the national youth-led movement fighting back against the assault on black studies, libraries, and the freedom to learn is gaining momentum. In an effort to support the movement, Marguerite Casey Foundation is thrilled to help get the newly released book, Our History Has Always Been Contraband, in defense of black studies, out as widely as possible so it can serve as a resource to all working to ensure the accurate teaching of black history. Co-edited by Colin Kaepernick and Marguerite Casey Foundation Freedom Scholars Robin D.G. Kelly and Kianga Yamada-Taylor, Our History Has Always Been Contraband brings together more than 50 canonical texts and authors in black studies, along with six new essays. Get your free ebook today at caseygrants.org slash freebook. That's C-A-S-E-Y-G-R-A-N-T-S dot org backslash freebook. This episode of America Dissected is brought to you by Karayuma, the cool sustainable sneaker company with old school style and new school ethics. Look, it's summer and we're all in search of that perfect shoe to carry us through the season, all things fun and sun. With over 40,000 five-star reviews, Karayuma's got you covered with shoes that have a classic look, are crazy comfortable, and consciously crafted for your ultimate daily summer shoe. Worn by celebrities and praised by publications like Vogue and GQ, these kicks are a cult favorite, and they're loved by us. I love the shoes because, well, of course, they're super comfortable, they last a long time, they don't leave you with really terrible calluses on your feet if you dare to walk more than a mile, and they look great. Akka is Karayuma's new school take on a timeless sneaker style and it just cleared a 94,000-person waitlist. It's designed for everyday wear, made with organic cotton canvas, and comes in timeless shades like white, gray, red, and blue. It's the perfect pair for all your summer outfits and days spent on your feet and out in the sunshine. We've loved the lace-up Akka for years, and now Karayuma recently launched canvas slip-ons. They're 100% vegan and made with organic cotton and a natural rubber outsole. This easy-to-wear style provides a timeless look with incredible comfort and ease. It's everything you love about the Akka, now without the laces. 
I love this shoe because you know what? Sometimes when I'm getting prepared to leave the house, I just like to slip on a shoe and, and get out. And this shoe allows me to do exactly that and look great doing it. Carrium is always keeping it fresh with epic collaborations with brands like Peanuts and Deus. There's something to love for everyone and sure to be shoes that will make a statement. Check out their summer shades made in collaboration with Pantone. Three new sneakers bursting with life for a season packed with fun and full of flavor. Look, I gotta go with blue, but all of them look great. Carriuma is B Corp certified and has dedicated reforestation program based in the Brazilian rainforest. Their co-founders, David and Fernando, both grew up there, so this project is especially close to home. For every pair of sneakers sold, Carriuma plants two trees, and they've already planted over two million trees to date. Look, I love the idea that what I put on my feet doesn't come at the cost of people's welfare or the planet. Not only that, but I'm actually trying to do something to help. Carriuma ships all sneakers free and fast in the United States and offers worldwide shipping and 60-day free returns. They deliver right to your front door using single-box recycle packaging. And for a limited time, America Dissected listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your pair of Carriuma sneakers. Go to C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash A-D-15 to get 15% off. That's C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash A-D-15 for 15% off only for a limited time. Let me let me play devil's advocate. I, I guess we're switching here. I think about how often disease is missed in screening. You know, we came up learning about sensitivity and specificity, which are basically metrics that are fancy ways to say how often do you get it wrong either way. And those are those are not particularly uh, high for a lot of screening that we do. Um, and so this kind of the, the analogy here that I think a lot of our listeners might have heard is the question of self-driving cars, right? Will self-driving cars cause accidents? Absolutely they will. But will they cause fewer accidents than human-driven cars? You could imagine a world where they get to doing that pretty quickly, particularly as the density of self-driving cars and the predictability of the algorithms that they use is higher, right, versus humans who, you know, predictably text and predictably fall asleep and predictably drive drunk or high. Um, and I guess the, you know, if, if the question is whether or not AI-based algorithms will get it wrong, I think that they they certainly will. The question to me more is, will they get it wrong less than human doctors get it wrong? And what happens then when you introduce a human on the loop who, because they have, and this is the thing I'm worried about, they have seeded so much of the deep learning that we're required to do when we're the only ones involved in diagnosis and treatment to AI, that when they do intervene, they get it wrong. Because yeah. I can imagine a world where like, if AI does everything for you, like I, I remember being in medical school and I trained at a, you know, particularly rigorous medical training program. I'm very grateful for, even as someone who doesn't practice, and, you know, the hospitals I trained at, we were so under, under uh, staffed that like you went and drew your own blood and then you took it down to pathology and then you waited and then you sit with the pathologist and look at, and so there was really good learning that happened there. And I worry that the quality of training, because of how easy it is to seed that work that goes into like really becoming an expert, I worry that the quality of training that a lot of our clinicians or the next generation of AI-empowered clinicians is going to get is in effect going to make them useless because you really don't have to get okay. it right. And I just, I, I want to understand sort of your sense on that. Like, is it possible to actually, after some washout period of like folks who did it the old way, I mean, and I'm saying this as somebody who had you know, uh, the, our version of AI was um, uh, uh, Google Scholar, or even better, uh, what's that? Um, what's that website that that everyone uses as, as Cribs Notes? Um, 
up to date. Up to date, thank you. We all had up to date, right? Yeah, sure. And so I, th I think about my father-in-law who's literally at the end of his practice career. He's like, oh, you guys are so lazy, right? You're just so late. You just go check up to date. Like you, you, you didn't actually have to go and find the information in the journals, like go to the library and read up on your patient. And so AI just makes it even easier. So I guess my question is, is it even possible at some point when you're training clinicians in the world of AI for them to be as human, right? As as clinicians of the past will be? Like, is it even possible to imagine a world where once AI has gotten good enough that you even have on-the-loop clinicians? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there, Abdul. So firstly, I want to just make a point that it may be obvious, but it's worth mentioning. Half of doctors are below average. Yeah, fair point. Okay? So if you can help the half that are below average in many aspects of their care of patients, uh, that's a good thing. Now, with respect to the medical knowledge domain, which is going to be in large language models already in GPT-4, you're getting on a, a, a it, it, this makes up-to-date look weak. Right. I mean, you're getting information up to the moment, you know, it not frozen a year and a half ago, but I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. So when you have real-time uh, medical domain knowledge for any given patient you're seeing, and then your 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 the inputs of those symptoms or you know the test results or all the above put in, you're getting uh, a help helper function, augmented function that you know we just can't we can't do that. You know we have to, as you say, seed some uh, help lean on a machine now. Does that mean we're going to become lazy? Does that mean that pilots, when they have autopilot, they don't know how to fly the plane? No. I mean, there will never be level five self-driving cars, which means driving under all conditions mm -hmm. that they, the car is autonomous. No, it'll never happen. And there's been a lot of hype about that it would, and it never will. And there'll never be this idea that doctors are going to lose their ability to function uh, as doctors, they're just going to get helped a lot. Now, are there lazy people out there in any profession that don't want to, uh, you know, really review things carefully, that want to, that are just too busy with other things in their life? I mean, I guess so, but I think most people who are involved in caring for patients are genuinely caring, right? And they're not going to let this stuff slip. So. I see it. I see the positives. You're bringing up the potential negatives. I see that too, uh, but I don't think that. I think we're still going to be able to land the plane uh, with the autopilot functioning at times. I I appreciate the analogy of autopilot. I worry that so much of medical knowledge is about repetition that by definition, even the greatest experts will not have had the kind of deep repetition that, um, that they would have had in the past, right? Your, your ability to, to uh, trust the AI, right, or, or trust autopilot um, is high. And yes, in the, in the, and maybe this is the way training will have to change, is that in the pilot scenario, yes, you may fly on autopilot, but you need to do your own reps every once in a while just to, just to make sure you get it right. I just worry that landing a plane is the same most of the time. I think that clinical care is so so vastly can be so vastly different 
And in the scenarios where you second guess the AI, by definition, it's what we call the zebras, not the horses, that because you will not have seen them as often, the ability to differentiate and second guess the AI, which is a way better pattern recognizer than you are, makes the analogy a little bit less clear to flying an airplane, right? Like landing an airplane, most of the time looks the same way. Treating a patient, I would argue that the times where it matters for you are the times where it looks different. I want to also move on just to um, a different scenario, which is one of the challenges I have with AI is recursion. Is that, you know, and you, you get this on the information space all the time, which is a lot of the hallucination doesn't really get picked up by the average user. So as someone who's an expert, when I ask ChatGPT a question, I'll take it to the edge of its, quote, knowledge, and it'll just hallucinate an answer. And I'm like, I know for certain that that's wrong. I can cite you the paper that proves it. Most people will be like, ah, I guess that's the right, the right answer. And there's a risk of inadvertent misinformation simply because AI is going to create more and more of the information that other AI trains on. And I worry that that's particularly a problem when it comes to health because of the scenario that the pandemic created, which is you have a completely novel virus that looks somewhat similar to other things. And all of a sudden, right, you have an AI-based algorithm that is learned on everything that has already existed and is not well geared to give you an answer that does not yet exist. And I worry about that both in terms of its ability to identify novel issues, right? You think about the advent of a COVID-19, but an advent of HIV, et cetera. But also uh, in terms of um, thinking about the way we integrate new treatment, right? Because by definition, the treatment is going to recommend other treatments that it has data for, um, that it's learned on. So how do we think about novelty and change in a world where AI ends up training so much of itself and in effect holds us back? Right. Well, I mean, the idea is that we're, whatever models we're seeing now, like GPT-4, um, they're going to improve. And I think there's lots of time that we're going to see it with this. There'll be iterative and then, you know, pretty substantial improvement such that incorporating real-time information, like as you're giving the example, a new virus, uh, and trying to anchor that uh, with, you know, no uh, links that are particularly uh, insightful or germane. You know, that's the kind of challenge I think we'll see how future LLMs perform. But I think that the thing that you're not potentially appreciating as much as I am is that the knowledge part of a patient-doctor relationship is one dimension. The caring part, okay, mm-hmm. that is, I, I, I really understand your concern, and I got your back. I care about you. Yeah. This is the part that's missing in medicine today. This is where patients are getting roughed up. I mean, I wrote about being roughed up in the book mm-hmm. of deep medicine, and when I go in a room and ask, you know, an audience. How many of you or your relatives have been roughed up by a doctor? I mean, everybody raises their hand. That's the part that we can improve. I mean, <laughs> the knowledge part, it will be augmented. Uh, and yeah, there may be some exceptions, like something that's never 
happened before, but what about all the rare things that doctors can't keep track of? Or the new things, you know, who can keep up with all the medical literature on a daily basis, no less on a monthly or a yearly basis? Mm -hmm. So just keep in mind, I think the biggest shortcoming in medicine today is the relationship has suffered. You know, I'm an old dog in medicine. You're much younger in your experience. But when I was in medical school in the late 70s, the, pre, the, the patient-doctor relationship was precious. Mm -hmm. It was an intimate relationship. Well, what is it today? It's very rare to be able to find a doctor who you feel really cares deeply about you and is there for you at any time to, 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 be, to help you. So the point being is don't forget how much AI can help decompress things to have that gift of time and restore the caring, which is the essentiality of medicine, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with you on that one, and I think, I think, uh, you're spot on in terms of what's missing in so much of, of medicine and healthcare today. I would diagnose the challenge as being, like you said, one of complexity and bureaucratic drag. But I would also characterize that challenge as being one of misaligned incentives. Uh, one of the biggest issues, and I know you've written about it, has been consolidation in healthcare. And you have uh, more and more of the means of healthcare owned by fewer and fewer corporations who have the ability to squeeze um, providers in ways that uh, tend to force out the humanism first. And one of the fears I have about the AI future is the way that the owners of the means of AI-based healthcare are going to be able to own the future of healthcare. And I worry that that's going to drive a lot more of the consolidating impact of the economics of healthcare. Can you speak to, to that and what it looks like to democratize um, some of these tech, some of this tech in ways that really do allow us to be more human at the bedside? Yeah, I share your concerns. That's actually my fundamental worry about where this is headed. Because at least in American medicine, uh, what Basically, the structure is uh, there are overlords. There are the CEOs of health systems. These are largely, almost exclusively, non-clinical people who are business people running American medicine. And so the problem with that is the, the power of AI to squeeze more out of clinicians you know, read more scans, see more patients, read more slides, and everything, do more, 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 because that's more uh, supporting the financials. This is where uh, having overlords like this is set up to all of this to fail. Mm. And unless we as physicians and the healthcare profession stand up, for patients and for our profession and for our purpose, uh, it, it isn't going to get fulfilled. So this is a really serious uh, obstacle because unlike other countries where there's universal health care and the, the mal-incentives are not present like they are here, we've got a real structural, serious problem. And you're seeing now much more forming of unions uh, among physicians than we've ever seen before in the history of the medical profession in the U.S. And we're likely going to see much more of that. But it's all being done, you know, kind of at local levels. We don't have a professional society that is willing to 
take this on. And so we got problems. And of all the things that I worry about in the era of AI, this is number one. Mm. Well, I think we've uh, we've we've found a, a, a very clear point of consensus, even if a dour one. But I will say it strikes me that um, that you are as optimistic as you are, and I'm I guess as cynical as I am. Um, and I and I think part of that is uh, you know if you if you sort of dissect this out into an age period and cohort effect, I think unfortunately. Um, Unfortunately, I think my cohort has sort of seen the worst of what the internet can create, and I think many of us are lonelier, uh, more depressed, and and more frustrated overall. And then, particularly, I think about my colleagues in medicine, the ones who stayed in medicine, and I don't know any of them who aren't trying to get out. Like every day, I talk to I have a large group of friends. I went to ended up going to medical school to do in two different places. So I have two different sets of classmates, and every single one of them is just frustrated, burnt out, jaded. And, you know, I, I really, really hope that we, we can achieve some of the, 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 the bigger, broader, you know, more um, marvelous goals that, that AI can offer uh, without bearing some of the potential costs, let alone the, this whole notion of P-Doom. The other interesting thing, I think, I, I, I had this debate uh, with a friend about whether or not... Um, People just get more cynical with age, or whether or not cynicism is a uh, U-shaped curve. And I think um, I think my my conversation with you today reminds me that it's a even as a pretty optimistic guy more generally that there is a U-shaped curve. And I um, you know I know that you've your <laughs> your your personal model is trained on a lot of history, and I really appreciate you bringing that history and that perspective to our conversation today. Uh, our guest today was Dr. Eric Topol. He um, is. Uh, I, I would say the for, foremost uh, futurist in uh, American medicine and healthcare. He's also a professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president of Scripps Research and founder director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, uh, and also author of the book on AI and medicine, Deep Medicine. Dr. Topol, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Abdul. I really enjoyed it. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Tonight, hazy skies are blanketing wide swaths of the country, from Boston to Philadelphia to New York City, where you can barely make out the skyline. Hundreds of wildfires in Canada are still burning out of control, and while the hazardous smoke is finally easing up, it's all raising concerns over whether dangerous air could be the new normal. Last Wednesday, while my daughter and I were in the car on her way to school, she said, Baba, I can't see the edges of the sun. When I looked up, she was right. After reminding her never to look directly into the sun, I had to think about why she was right. It was all that PM 2.5 in the air. In other parts of the country, it had turned the sky the color of salmon. PM 2.5 stands for particulate matter smaller than 2.5 microns. Particulate matter is a fancy way of saying stuff. And that stuff is so small that our body's usual mechanism for stopping it from getting into our lungs can't even catch it. See, there's this system of tiny cell fingers lining our throats that literally move the stuff that gets caught in our throats upward. That's why if you've ever visited or lived in a place with lots of smog, you cough up black sputum. But those little throat fingers we all have can't catch the smallest particles, so they go deep into the balloons that make up the ends of our lungs, called alveoli. That's why PM2.5 is so dangerous. It's bad for pregnant women, infants, children, particularly those with asthma, and vulnerable adults with chronic illnesses. It can cause heart attacks as all that junk increases the resistance in our lungs, forcing hearts to work harder in the process. And it's why it's estimated that spending 24 hours under the kind of air quality that we experienced in Michigan is the equivalent of smoking 10 cigarettes. 
Make no mistake, these kinds of bad air days are becoming more common. And it's all because of climate change. What caused that horrible air? Smoke from fires thousands of miles away in Canada. What caused the fires in Canada? Unusually dry weather. What caused that? Well, climate change. It's another reminder of how climate change will affect us. And don't forget, if you're someone who's never been exposed to that kind of putrid air before last week, that's called privilege. There are millions of Americans, predominantly black and brown, who live in airsheds of smokestacks that are driving climate change every single day. And the air they breathe and the bodies that it wrecks tells that story. But it's not all doom when it comes to lung health. A panel of advisors to the FDA just recommended a new medication to prevent RSV in infants. RSV, short for respiratory syncytial virus, is an infectious illness that sends tens of thousands of babies to the emergency room every single year. If you'll remember, RSV was really bad this winter. Nirsevimab, an injectable monoclonal antibody designed to target RSV among infants, was shown to reduce the probability of infections requiring hospitalization by up to 75%. And even as we bring you that promising story, finally, a reminder that pharma gonna pharma. The giant pharmaceutical corporation, Merck, is suing the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services over the prescription drug negotiation piece of the Inflation Reduction Act. If you'll remember, the law would allow the federal government to negotiate the prices of 10 of the most expensive prescription drugs that A, have no generics or biosimilars, and B, have been on the market for at least nine years or more. And the kicker here is it doesn't even take effect until 2026. But Merck couldn't even stomach that. Get this, they argue that prescription drug price negotiation violates their Fifth Amendment rights because it would, quote, take their private property without due compensation. Sir, need I remind you that we, the federal taxpayers, underwrite their prescription drugs by literally paying for the initial research that produces them? Sit the F down, Mark. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. It really does go a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some America Dissected merch. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emma Illich Frank. Vasilis Fotopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takei Sazawa and Alex Figuera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human and Veteran Services. <laughs>